We are continuing in our series on the one another commands of the New Testament. And today we're at Revelation, uh, or Romans 15 verses four. I was gonna do 14 to 16, but I, yesterday I cut it to just verse 14. So just gonna do verse 14 uh, today. And so if you would uh, turn there to Romans chapter 15, the end of the book of Romans, and then look at verse 14. And uh, please listen carefully. It's just one verse, but it is God's word. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it more than ever. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to one of the more difficult of the many one another commands. This is one that many of us are not sure we can do. So we pray we would learn from you today that we would listen carefully and we would follow the one who enables us to obey them thoroughly. Thank you that today we're learning once again from the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them, and in so doing, demonstrate our love for your church by stepping out in faith in order to instruct one another. And so we pray, speak through Romans 15 once again this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Some of my fondest memories uh, as a kid include long summer days spent at the pool. I went to summer camp on the Delaware River for about eight summers, and uh, we swam in the river, but we also had a large pool. And it took me a really long time to learn how to swim. Uh, but once I did, I loved going to the water, and I still do. And those summer memories are filled with memories of uh, flipping off the diving board and uh, shouting Marco Polo and, of course, playing King of the Mountain. And the goal of the game, King of the Mountain, was to be the only one left on top of the raft. So we had this big raft, and they put it out there, and everybody tried to get on it and push everybody else off. And, um, you know, you wanted to rule your kingdom by any means necessary. And since there were lots of kids at this camp and I was pretty small back then, I had to learn how to be scrappy to win at this uh, brutal game. So from an early age, I learned that only the strong survive. Now, I still love going to the pool, not as much as the beach, but it's still fun. However, now I'm told that as a grown-up, it's no longer cool to push people off their rafts at the pool. What fun is that? I mean, I thought that was the point. So invite me to your pool party. We'll see. You know, the thing is, though, that sometimes King of the Mountain stops being a game and becomes a metaphor for life in this world. After all, we still want to be on top. We just have different rafts now. 
and we've learned to defend our turf in more covert ways. So much of how we respond has to do with whether we're on top or not. When you're treading water, you hope and pray for a gracious hand to help you up onto the raft. But then when you're on top, it's easy to become prideful in your position. And it can get ugly when there isn't enough room on the raft for everyone. And even in the church, we can foster the belief that the kingdom of God only has space for the good people, whether we're conscious of that or not. Now, in our reading for today, the Apostle Paul is writing to a Roman church comprised of two very different groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And it seems from its earliest days there um, that there were divisions among the believers there. And those who were strong didn't want to help those who they considered to be weak. And as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul addresses both of them um, by saying, Romans 15, 7, Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So Paul points out that even the strongest among us of all, of the Lord Jesus, did not use his power to please himself. If anybody had a right to boast, it was the Lord. Yet he took our weakness upon himself to the point of sacrificing his life on our behalf. So we're all in need of God's grace. And in that humility, we can seek to be like Jesus, freely passing on the strength and encouragement that's been gifted to us. And if the Lord of the universe humbled himself and bore our weakness, how much more should we do uh, the same for those he's put around us? So in addition to following the sacrificial example of Jesus, Paul also calls the Roman church to welcome one another for the glory of God. And so when we're competitive and exclusive in our churches, how do you suppose we're seen from the outside? Our witness can be compromised by our selfishness. But if we're a countercultural people and we can demonstrate with love and sincerity that there's room at the table of God or room on the raft, so to speak, then we have something really different to offer. And it's hard because it's so tempting to believe the lie of the world that we must be on top. And that we have to fight to get there. But in the kingdom of God, there's always enough room for everyone. As believers, we're called to love both the strong and the weak. And if we stop trying to protect our raft, together we can glorify the one true king who lives and reigns over all mountains. So what does all that have to do with the biblical command to instruct one another, our focus for today? Well, first of all, it means that if we're going to obey this command, there's no room for our little rafts. You can't fight to be on top when you're busy helping friends know the word of God a little bit more. And if we're pushing each other towards godliness, to help people grow uh, spiritually to maturity in Christ, then we have to accept the notion that spiritual maturity is a community project. Spiritual maturity is a community project. 
if we're supposed to care about the reputation of God in our own lives, the Bible makes it clear we're supposed to care about the reputation of God in each other's lives as well, which once again means that spiritual maturity is a community project. Now, how do we get here? The Apostle Paul has just spent many chapters laying out the gospel of God's grace in great detail. And in chapter 14, he makes an eloquent plea for the strong and weak Christians to live together in unity. Clearly, the church at Rome is this mixed multitude of young and old believers, Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, wine drinkers and total abstainers. People who observe special days and those who observe no special days at all. <clears throat> and sometimes they didn't get along very well. The church at Rome was filled with problems, mostly because it was filled with people. And whenever you have people, you have problems. I've said many times that the best thing about the church is the people. And the worst thing about the church is the people. And yet, Paul says here in our verse for today, I myself am satisfied about you. Now, how can he say such nice things about him here in verse 14 after he has said such hard things to him in chapters 12, 13, 14 in the beginning of chapter 15? He can say it because his heart is for them and not against them. He can say it because it's true in spite of their human weakness. He can say it because he loves them and longs to see them grow <coughs> to full maturity in Christ. And most of all, he can say it because he has enormous confidence in God's grace, which is at work in their lives. So let's look at what he says and why he says it. Let's look again at verse 14, because there we get a principle of maturity. The principle of maturity. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Now, I think that any of us who are in the pastor business would like to pastor a church of people who are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. It almost sounds like you don't need me. You really don't, but since I'm not ready to go, don't tell anyone. So let's take these descriptions of spiritual maturity one at a time. What does it mean to be full of goodness? One of the most common excuses we have for not doing something is I'm not good enough. I mean, if you think about it, we're far more accepting of Paul's rebukes and exhortations than we are of his compliments and his confidence. After all, we know ourselves, right? We know that God's still working things out in us and that we don't have it all together. So who are we to instruct someone else? We're not good enough to do that. Now you know what I feel like every Saturday. And we can cite passages 
like Romans 3.10, which says, no one is righteous, no, not one. Or Isaiah 64, which tells us we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. We can't be good enough to be called good. But goodness is applied to us through what Christ has done for us. As the apostle tells us in Romans 3, 22 to 24, <clears throat> that we have the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everybody knows that. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Our goodness isn't earned, it's bestowed, it's given. It's the fact that we aren't good in and of ourselves that makes the gospel so great. We may have traded goodness for sin, but then we receive goodness once again because of God's grace in Christ. His goodness is applied to us through Christ. So if you're in Christ, you are good enough. If you are in Christ, you are good enough because you have his goodness. So if they and us are full of goodness, it's because the God of goodness is at work in them and in us. Now think about this idea of goodness. It's always easy to criticize and to find fault with others. But if you think about it, that fault finder is kind of like a spiritual vulture, you know, flying over the landscape, looking for the failures of others so he can pounce on them. How much better to be like Paul and believe the best and not the worst? In all the Bible, this word goodness is only used by the Apostle Paul. And that's significant because it refers to moral or ethical goodness, as well as to what we would naturally think of, uh, traits like kindness and thoughtfulness and charity to the poor and so on. But when Paul's using it, he's specifically talking about being morally and ethically good. And we can't forget that goodness is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.2, and that according to Ephesians 2.10, doing good works is a necessary outcome for having become Christians. That verse says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So if we don't show any evidence of God's goodness in our lives, or if we don't do any good works, it's evidence that we may not actually be Christians. So goodness is a checkoff point, not only for a good church, but whether or not we're genuine followers of Christ. So the first thing we see is that they're full of goodness. Second, he says they're filled with all knowledge. How many people want to check that box off? You know, that's actually another common excuse we make. Uh, for keeping quiet, for not speaking up. I don't know enough. Have you ever said that? Most of us have at one time or another. 
We tend to think that in order to share something spiritual with someone else in the church, we have to be biblical scholars or at least an elder. But we know Jesus. And according to the Apostle Paul, we who are full of goodness through faith in Jesus Christ are now filled with all knowledge. Now this does not mean that we know everything about everything. And you have probably met that person who thinks that they know everything about everything. And fruit of the Spirit is not our first thought when we think of that person. But 2 Peter 1.3 makes it clear, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The church is filled with all the knowledge required for life and godliness through the work of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of the Holy Scriptures. Along the same lines, Paul wrote to Timothy, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Some of you know this. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This means that as Christians, we have everything we need to help one another grow spiritually in order to become more like Jesus. So if a person's having a problem in their marriage with their children at home, at work, or all the above, the church is able to help because we know the one who can provide the best help. We have the spirit who leads us into all truth and the scriptures that teach us. Our knowledge isn't just some good idea that we or someone else had but it comes through the Holy Spirit and is rooted in the Word of God. Therefore, if they and us are filled with knowledge, it's because God himself has filled them and filled us with that knowledge. So full of goodness, filled with knowledge. And third, he says they're able to instruct one another. Proverbs 19.27 uh, says to us, Cease to hear instruction, my son, and you will stray from the words of knowledge. Of course, we read in our responsive reading today, uh, also from Proverbs about knowledge and instruction and wisdom. So in Christ, you're full of goodness and knowledge so that you're able to instruct. In fact, it's essential for our life in Christ. Think about this. When your car breaks down, where do you go? You don't take your car to the doctor's office no matter how good a doctor he or she may be. Because you know they can't give you the kind of help you need. What you need is a good mechanic who knows cars. Same principle is true in our spiritual life. When you need help with things in your life, things the Bible addresses, you know, things like anger and anxiety, where do you go? You probably have a number of uh, options. You have friends and coworkers and classmates and neighbors, but wouldn't it make the most sense to go to those who are full of goodness and filled with knowledge in Christ? If we're gonna grow in Christ in his fullness, then we need to be instructed in Christ and who he is and what he's done and what he says about himself and what he says about us in his promises, in his truth, in his ways. And God has given us a community a family of brothers and sisters, all of whom know him. And he's what we really need. 
And that's why spiritual maturity is a community project. So we, as the people of God, are not people who have it all figured out, but a people in process that God is maturing and completing. And in spite of our imperfections, God has chosen to use each of us in one another's lives to help make spiritual maturity happen. And at the end of the day, we're all in this together and we all need each other. So we have to make each other a priority. So we need to put away fear. We need to put away perfectionism and humble ourselves and open ourselves up to receiving instruction from one another and let's dare to open our mouths and to instruct one another. It's a two-way street. We're instructing each other and receiving instruction. We're pointing one another towards Jesus. We're pointing one another towards life in Christ. And if they, the church at Rome, and us are able to instruct one another, it's because God has equipped them and equipped us by his spirit. And so we have that statement that the Apostle Paul is satisfied with their growth in grace. But are we satisfied with ours? Moreover, are we satisfied with each other's growth in grace? Can we say with the Apostle Paul, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourself are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. Maybe you are, but maybe you're not. So all of this begs the question, what are we going to instruct each other in? If the command is to instruct one another, then instruct in what? If we're to be filled with knowledge, that should be seen in our grasp of the gospel. If we're going to be able to teach, encourage, and challenge uh, one another, able to instruct one another, then we should be able to apply the gospel to each other's lives in order to change our patterns of behavior. Part of Paul's pastoral skill is to subtly strengthen in others the very qualities about which he expresses confidence. Now this word instruct it's the Greek word nothatine. It's translated in a variety of ways. In addition to instruct, it's translated as warn, admonish, and counsel. And uh, this phrase, uh, instruct one another, says you are able to instruct one another. And some other version says you are competent to counsel one another. And all the way back in 1970, I realized that was way back for a lot of you, and before a lot of you, a guy named Jay Adams, who was a professor at Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia at the time, wrote a huge book based on this verse. And it was called Competent to Counsel. And uh, it changed counseling in the Christian world. He was arguing against psychological counseling and in favor of biblical counseling. And he called this nothetic counseling based on the Greek uh, verb here that's translated instruct. Although he did it in sort of a corrective sense of the word. Now it implies there's 
a problem over here with someone, it may be immaturity, it may be outright sin in the life of that person that needs to be addressed, needs to be dealt with, needs to be overcome. And his argument is basically, all of us are competent, are able to instruct that person, to counsel that person, because we have God's word and God's spirit. Several times the Apostle Paul uses this word to describe his own ministry. He told the Ephesians elder in Acts 20, therefore be alert, remembering that for three years they did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears, using the same word. In Colossians 1, he wrote, him we proclaim, warning everyone, same word, and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. He wrote to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians 5, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, same word, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all. And in our text here, Paul says he's confident that the Roman believers are capable of exercising this ministry towards one another. While the elders may need to get involved at times, this is a ministry that the whole body is to engage in on a regular basis. If you know a Christian who's drifting away from the faith, is going astray, it's your responsibility to try to restore him or her to the Lord. We see that in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. If you're not sure how to go about that, ask an elder for help. But your relationship with the straying brother or sister usually means that you're the most effective member of the body to try to restore him or her. You are, very literally speaking, your brother's keeper. So what are you supposed to do and what are you supposed to say? Well, it all begins and ends with the gospel. It all begins and ends with the gospel. The gospel is good news. That's what the Greek word literally means. And you would think nothing should be easier to proclaim than good news. But we have to ask a few questions. First, what's the nature of this good news? Well, the answer is that God has provided a way for us to be saved from our sin through the work of Jesus Christ. So let's explore that a little bit. What is sin? Well, the Westminster Catechism says... Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. If you think about it, this is what Paul has done throughout the book of Romans. He's explored the nature and extent of sin in great detail so that we can understand the nature and extent of God's saving grace to us in Christ Jesus. And the point is that although the gospel is a simple thing, explaining it takes time. So when we instruct one another, we should take time to emphasize the whole gospel. The whole gospel. Paul made it his aim to preach the whole gospel. This is actually really important. Now I've pointed out the nature of the gospel is often missed because 
We don't want to deal with the underlying matter such as sin as defined by God's law. But even when we've done that, and even when we've gone on to speak of the work of Christ in saving us from God's just punishment for our sin, we still haven't explained the whole gospel. For the good news is not just that God has made a way for us to be saved from the penalty of sin, but that God is also saving us from the practice of sin. That's why we sing, be of sin the double cure, save us from its guilt and power. Guilt is the penalty of sin, power is the practice of sin. And according to the Bible, Jesus died to save us from our sin, not in our sin. This is what Paul has been teaching in the entire book of Romans. And not just that, he's taught the need to apply the whole gospel to our whole life which is what chapters 12, 13, 14, 15, and 16 are all about. So not only do we emphasize the whole gospel, but we emphasize nothing but the gospel. There's more than one way to tell a lie. And one way is to tell the truth, but add to it falsely. And the same thing's true for the gospel. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian apologist, wrote in his uh, famous book, uh, The Screwtape Letters, that the greatest heresies in the church have not been the denials of Christian truth so much as they have been the additions to Christian truth. What Lewis called Christ and, Christ and my identity, faith and works, grace and merit, Christianity and culture, and so on and so forth. And his letter to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul is dealing with people who wanted to keep adding the law to faith as a means of justification. He said if they did that, Christ would be of no value to them. Galatians 5.2 Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. He said if anyone preached the gospel of Jesus plus, that it's another gospel, a false gospel and he should be condemned. Now, the positive expression of what Paul's doing appears to his word, uh, in the, at, excuse me, appears in his words to the church at Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 2, he said, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul decided not to add to Christ's work. He preached Christ and Christ alone. And if those things can be said of us, thank God. We're not capable of addressing these things in ourselves. They are his work. And if they can't be said of us, then they become the goals we work towards, that we might be full of goodness, that we might be filled with knowledge, that we might be able to instruct one another. And at that point, we'll begin to have a more mature church serving and teaching one another, as Ephesians 4 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now you may be wondering, not much longer for the kids, what does that look like? Well, I'm going to show you. What is a church who's doing those things that's full of goodness and filled with knowledge and able to instruct one another, what's that church look like? 
Well, I want to show you by way of a recent letter I received. And before I read it to you, I need to warn you, you may need some Kleenex. This letter is from Brenda and Vicki Miller, who are sister and niece to Stuart Stearns, who is our dearly beloved brother who recently graduated to glory. And she wrote this letter to me, but it's for the whole church. And it reads as follows. Dear Pastor David and church friends, I want to let everyone in Stewart's church know how thankful my daughter Vicki and I are for the friendship and care that all of you have shown him when he was living in Leesburg. Everyone that I met showed an exemplary example of the teaching of Jesus. They were there to help when my sister Paula was fighting her battle with cancer. His friends came to the condo and showed love and helped Paula and Stuart, who had begun dealing with his own health problems. Cece helped with his finances. And some came to visit him to check on how he was doing. Some took him to his doctor's appointments. The pastors came in at times to help around the condo when needed. And after Stuart was brought out here to Missouri, his friends continued to keep in touch with him, letting him know that they cared for him. I don't think anyone could have asked for a more loving friendship than was what was shown to him. Your letters and notes brought here by Anne-Marie were very heartwarming to Stuart, Vicki, and I. We read every one of them to him. He knows that he was loved. I have been very impressed with the love your church has shown to our family. I made a picture album of his life, and I put all the letters and notes in it for him. He would like that. I love my brother very much. He never spoke a bad word about anyone and was so calm and funny. Yes, he had a good sense of humor, and he enjoyed making people laugh. He was very eclectic and interested in so many things. Stuart passed away in his sleep on May 29th, 2021. Vicki and I were amazed at the look on his face. He looked as though he was breaking into a smile. We think he must have seen or heard someone before he passed, and that person was going to take him into God's care. Stuart was a good Christian man and quietly set an example for those around him. He will be missed. I only hope that I can live and have the faith that he had. Thank you once again for all your support and friendship, Brenda and Vicki Miller. That's genuine Christianity. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be part of a church filled with such people? But you are. And yes, while we are filled with our imperfections, let me say with the Apostle Paul, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. So please keep doing that. It's time to pray. After a moment, I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we fail to see your work in us. There are times when we fail to see your work in others. And most times we're much more interested in being instructed than in being able to instruct one another. So thank you for the one who instructs us, who sanctifies us, who fills us with all knowledge, who gives us your goodness, that we may grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for the one who accomplished all that by bearing our sin on the cross, who redeems us by his blood shed for many for the remission of sins, turning his curse into our blessing for the salvation of our souls. And it is of you, Lord Jesus, that we sing, let the water and the blood from thy ribbon side which flowed be of sin the double cure, save me from its guilt and power. Help us flee for refuge to the cross that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us and work in each of us this summer as we learn how to instruct one another in the gospel and teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word. And through these one another commands, draw us ever closer to the one who displays them perfectly, your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.